Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome back to Eli Reads. This is chapter 15, the last chapter of Salambo by Gustave Flaubert. I'm Eli. This is a pretty short chapter and it wraps everything up and it comes with a pretty abrupt ending, which I am going to read a little bit about from Anne Green's book. Professor Anne Green uh, wrote a book about Salambo. It's probably the, the definitive book. Uh, about Salambo. It's called Salambo Reassessed, uh, Flaubert and the Historical Novel. She's got a lot of interesting things to say about this book. And if you stick around, you'll get to hear from Anne Green herself. Chapter 15, Matho. There were rejoicings at Carthage. Rejoicings deep, universal, extravagant, frantic. The holes of the ruins had been stopped up. The statues of the gods had been repainted. The streets were strewn with myrtle branches. Incense smoked at the corners of the crossways, and the throng on the terraces looked in their variegated garments like heaps of flowers blooming in the air. The shouts of the water carriers watering the pavement rose above the continual screaming of voices, Slaves belonging to Hamilcar offered in his name roasted barley and pieces of raw meat. People accosted one another and embraced one another with tears. The Tyrian towns were taken, the nomads dispersed, and all the barbarians annihilated. The Acropolis was hidden beneath colored valeria. The beaks of the triremes drawn up in line outside the mole shone like a dike of diamonds. Everywhere there was a sense of the restoration of order, the beginning of a new existence and the diffusion of vast happiness. It was the day of Salambo's marriage with the king of the Numidians. On the terrace of the temple of Camon, there were three long tables laden with gigantic plate at which the priests, ancients, and the rich were to sit, and there was a fourth and higher one for Hamilcar, Narhavas, and Salambo, for, as she had saved her country, by the restoration of the Zamp, the people turned her wedding day into a national rejoicing, and were waiting in the square below till she should reappear. 
But their impatience was excited by another and more acrid longing. Matho's death had been promised for the ceremony. It had been proposed at first to flay him alive, to pour lead into his entrails, to kill him with hunger. He should be tied to a tree, and an ape behind him should strike him on the head with a stone. He had offended Tanit, and the Sinocephaluses of Tanit should avenge her. Others were of opinion that he should be led about on a dromedary, after linen wicks dipped in oil had been inserted in his body in several places, and they took pleasure in the thought of the large animal wandering through the streets with this man writhing beneath the fires like a candelabrum blown about by the wind. But what citizens should be charged with his torture, and why disappoint the rest? They would have liked a kind of death in which the whole town might take part, in which every hand, every weapon, everything Carthaginian to the very paving stones in the streets and the waves in the gulf could rend him and crush him and annihilate him. Accordingly, the ancients decided that he should go from his prison to the square of Camon without any escort, and with his arms fastened to his back. It was forbidden to strike him to the heart in order that he might live the longer, to put out his eyes so that he might see the torture through, to hurl anything against his person, or to lay more than three fingers upon him at a time. Although he was not to appear until the end of the day, the people sometimes fancied that he could be seen, and the crowd would rush towards the Acropolis and empty the streets to return with lengthened murmurings. Some people had remained standing in the same place since the day before, and they would call on one another from a distance and show their nails which they had allowed to grow, the better to bury them into his flesh. Others walked restlessly up and down. Some were as pale as though they were awaiting their own execution. Suddenly, lofty feather fans rose above the heads behind the Mapalian district. It was Salambo leaving her palace. A sigh of relief found vent. But the procession was long in coming. It marched with deliberation. First there filed past the priests of the Patek gods, then those of Eshmoon, of Melkarth, and all the other colleges in succession, with the same insignia and in the same order as had been observed at the time of the sacrifice. The pontiffs of Moloch passed with heads bent, and the multitude stood aside from them in a kind of remorse. But the priests of Rebetna advanced with a proud step and with lyres in their hands. The priestesses followed them in transparent robes of yellow or black, uttering cries like birds and writhing like vipers, or else swirling round to the sound of flutes to imitate the dance of the stars, while their light garments wafted puffs of delicate scents through the streets. The Kedeshim, with painted eyelids, who symbolized the hermaphrodism of the divinity, received applause among these women, and, being perfumed and dressed like them, they resembled them in spite of their flat breasts and narrower hips. Moreover, on this day the female principle dominated and confused all things. A mystic voluptuousness moved in the heavy air. The torches were already lighted in the depths of the sacred woods. There was to be a great celebration there during the night. Three vessels had brought courtesans from Sicily, and others had come from the desert. As the colleges arrived, they ranged themselves in the courts of the temples, on the outer galleries, and along double staircases which rose against the walls and drew together at the top. Files of white robes appeared between the colonnades, and the architecture was peopled with human statues, motionless as statues of stone. Then came the masters of the exchequer, 
the governors of the provinces and all the rich. A great tumult prevailed below. Adjacent streets were discharging the crowd. Hyrodules were driving it back with blows of sticks. And then Salambo appeared in a litter, surmounted by a purple canopy and surrounded by the ancients, crowned with their golden tiaras. Thereupon, an immense shout arose. The cymbals in Crotala sounded more loudly. Tambourines thundered, and the great purple canopy sank between the two pylons. It appeared again on the first landing. Salambo was walking slowly beneath it. Then she crossed the terrace to take her seat behind on a kind of throne cut out of the carapace of a tortoise. An ivory stool with three steps was pushed beneath her feet. Two negro children knelt on the edge of the first step, and sometimes she would rest both arms, which were laden with rings of excessive weight, upon their heads. From ankle to hip, she was covered with a network of narrow meshes which were in imitation of fish scales and shone like mother-of-pearl. Her waist was clasped by a blue zone, which allowed her breasts to be seen through two crescent-shaped slashings. The nipples were hidden by carbuncle pendants. She had a headdress made of a peacock's feathers studded with gems. An ample cloak as white as snow fell behind her, and with her elbows at her sides, her knees pressed together, and circles of diamonds on the upper part of her arms, she remained perfectly upright, in a hieratic attitude. Her father and her husband were on two lower seats, Narhavas dressed in a light simar and wearing his crown of rock salt, from which there strayed two tresses of hair as twisted as the horns of Ammon, and Hamilcar in a violet tunic figured with gold vine branches and with a battle sword at his side. The python of the temple of Eshmoon lay on the ground amid pools of pink oil in the space enclosed by the tables, and, biting its tail, described a large black circle. In the middle of the circle there was a copper pillar bearing a crystal egg, and as the sun shone upon it, rays were emitted on every side. Behind Salambo stretched the priests of Tanit in linen robes. On her right the ancients in their tiaras formed a great gold line, and on the other side the rich, with their emerald scepters, a great green line— while quite in the background, where the priests of Moloch were ranged, the cloaks looked like a wall of purple. The other colleges occupied the lower terraces. The multitude obstructed the streets. It reached to the housetops and extended in long file to the summit of the Acropolis. Having thus the people at her feet, the firmament above her head, and around her the immensity of the sea, the gulf, the mountains, and the distant provinces, Salambo, in her splendor, was blended with Tanit, and seemed the very genius of Carthage and its embodied soul. The feast was to last all night, and lamps with several branches were planted like trees on the painted woolen cloths which covered the low tables. Large electrum flagons, blue glass amphoras, tortoiseshell spoons, and small round loaves were crowded between the double row of pearl-bordered plates Bunches of grapes with their leaves had been rolled round ivory vine stalks after the fashion of the Thyrsus. Blocks of snow were melting on ebony trays, and lemons, pomegranates, gourds, and watermelons formed hillocks beneath the lofty silver plate. Boars with open jaws were wallowing in the dust of spices. Hares covered with their fur appeared to be bounding amid the flowers. There were shells filled with forcemeat. The pastry had symbolic shapes. 
When the covers of the dishes were removed, doves flew out. The slaves, meanwhile, with tunics tucked up, were going about on tiptoe. From time to time a hymn sounded on the lyres, or a choir of voices rose. The clamor of the people, continuous as the noise of the sea, floated vaguely around the feast and seemed to lull it in a broader harmony. Some recalled the banquet of the mercenaries. They gave themselves up to dreams of happiness. The sun was beginning to go down, and the crescent of the moon was already rising in another part of the sky. But Salambo turned her head as though someone had called her. The people who were watching her followed the direction of her eyes. The door of the dungeon, hewn in the rock at the foot of the temple, on the summit of the Acropolis, had just opened. And a man was standing on the threshold of this black hole. He came forth bent double, with the scared look of fallow deer when suddenly enlarged. The light dazzled him. He stood motionless a while. All had recognized him, and they held their breath. In their eyes, the body of this victim was something peculiarly theirs, and was adorned with almost religious splendor. They bent forward to see him, especially the women. They burned to gaze upon him, who had caused the deaths of their children and husbands. And from the bottom of their souls there sprang up, in spite of themselves, an infamous curiosity, a desire to know him completely a wish mingled with remorse, which turned to increased execration. At last he advanced, then the stupefaction of surprise disappeared. Numbers of arms were raised, and he was lost to sight. The staircase of the Acropolis had sixty steps. He descended them, as though he were rolled down in a torrent from the top of a mountain. Three times he was seen to leap, and then he alighted below on his feet, His shoulders were bleeding, his breast was panting with great shocks, and he made such efforts to burst his bonds that his arms, which were crossed on his naked loins, swelled like pieces of a serpent. Several streets began in front of him, leading from the spot at which he found himself. In each of them, a triple row of bronze chains, fastened to the navels of the Patek gods, extended in parallel lines from one end to the other. The crowd was massed against the houses and servants belonging to the ancients walked in the middle, brandishing thongs. One of them drove him forward with a great blow. Matho began to move. They thrust their arms over the chains, shouting out that the road had been left too wide for him, and he passed along, felt, pricked, and slashed by all those fingers. When he reached the end of one street, another appeared. Several times he flung himself to one side to bite them. They speedily dispersed. The chains held him back the crowd burst out laughing. A child rent his ear. A young girl, hiding the point of a spindle in her sleeve, split his cheek. They tore handfuls of hair from him and strips of flesh. Others smeared his face with sponges steeped in filth and fastened upon sticks. A stream of blood started from the right side of his neck. Frenzy immediately set in. This last barbarian was to them a representative of all the barbarians and all the army. They were taking vengeance on him for their disasters, their terrors, and their shame. The rage of the mob developed with its gratification. The curving chains were overstrained and were on the point of breaking. The people did not feel the blows of the slaves who struck at them to drive them back. Some clung to the projections of the houses. All the openings in the walls were stopped up with heads, and they howled at him the mischief that they could not inflict upon him. 
It was atrocious, filthy abuse, mingled with ironical encouragements and imprecations, and his present tortures not being enough for them, they foretold to him others that should be still more terrible in eternity. This vast baying filled Carthage with stupid continuity, frequently a single syllable, A hoarse, deep, and frantic intonation would be repeated for several minutes by the entire people. The walls would vibrate with it from top to bottom, and both sides of the street would seem to Matho to be coming against him and carrying him off the ground, like two immense arms stifling him in the air. Nevertheless, he remembered that he had experienced something like it before. The same crowd was on the terraces. There were the same looks and the same wrath But then he had walked free. All had then dispersed, for a god covered him. And the recollection of this, gaining precision by degrees, brought a crushing sadness upon him. Shadows passed before his eyes. The town whirled round in his head. His blood streamed from a wound in his hip. He felt that he was dying. His hams bent, and he sank quite gently upon the pavement. Someone went to the peristyle of the temple of Melkarth, took thence the bar of a tripod, heated red-hot in the coals, and slipping it beneath the first chain, pressed it against his wound. The flesh was seen to smoke. The hootings of the people drowned his voice. He was standing again. Six paces further on, and he fell a third, and again a fourth time. But some new torture always made him rise. They discharged little drops of boiling oil through tubes at him. They strewed pieces of broken glass beneath his feet. Still he walked on. At the corner of the street of Satheb, he leaned his back against the wall beneath the penthouse of a shop and advanced no further. The slaves of the council struck him with their whips of hippopotamus leather, so furiously and long that the fringes of their tunics were drenched with sweat. Matho appeared insensible. Suddenly he started off and began to run at random, making a noise with his lips like one shivering with severe cold. He threaded the street of Budes and the street of Soipo, crossed the green market and reached the square of Camon. He now belonged to the priests. The slaves had just dispersed the crowd and there was more room. Matho gazed round him and his eyes encountered Salambo. At the first step that he had taken, she had risen. Then, as he approached, she had involuntarily advanced by degrees to the edge of the terrace, and soon all external things were blotted out, and she saw only Matho. Silence fell in her soul, one of those abysses wherein the whole world disappears beneath the pressure of a single thought, a memory, a look. This man who was walking towards her attracted her. Accepting his eyes, he had no appearance of humanity left. He was a long, perfectly red shape. His broken bonds hung down his thighs, but they could not be distinguished from the tendons on his wrists, which were laid quite bare. His mouth remained wide open. From his eye sockets there darted flames, which seemed to rise up to his hair. And the wretch still walked on. He reached the foot of the terrace. Salambo was leaning over the balustrade. Those frightful eyeballs were scanning her. And there rose within her a consciousness of all that he had suffered for her. Although he was in his death agony, she could see him once more kneeling in his tent, encircling her waist with his arms, and stammering out gentle words. She thirsted to feel them and hear them again. She did not want him to die. 
At this moment, Matho gave a great start. She was on the point of shrieking aloud. He fell backwards and did not stir again. Salambo was borne back, nearly swooning, to her throne by the priests who flocked about her. They congratulated her. It was her work. All clapped their hands and stamped their feet, howling her name. A man darted upon the corpse. Although he had no beard, he had the cloak of a priest of Moloch on his shoulder, and in his belt that species of knife which they employed for cutting up the sacred meat, and which terminated at the end of the handle in a golden spatula. He cleft Matho's breast with a single blow, and then snatched out the heart and laid it upon the spoon. And Shahabarim, uplifting his arm, offered it to the sun. The sun sank behind the waves. His rays fell like long arrows upon the red heart. As the beatings diminished, the planet sank into the sea, and at the last palpitation it disappeared. Then from the gulf to the lagoon, and from the isthmus to the pharos, in all the streets, on all the houses, and on all the temples, there was a single shout. Sometimes it paused to be again renewed. The buildings shook with it. Carthage was convulsed, as it were, in the spasm of titanic joy and boundless hope. Narhavas, drunk with pride, passed his left arm beneath Salambo's waist in token of possession, and taking a gold patera in his right hand, he drank to the genius of Carthage. Salambo rose like her husband, with a cup in her hand, to drink also. She fell down again, with her head lying over the back of the throne, pale, stiff, with parted lips, and her loosened hair hung to the ground. Thus died Hamilcar's daughter, for having touched the mantle of Tanid. So that's it. That's the last sentence. That's the last chapter. That's the end of the book. A little sudden, wasn't it? Let me read you what Anne Green says about the end of this book. By the time we reach the novel's closing sentence, she writes, we are quite sure that the offered explanations and motives are not to be trusted. So died the daughter of Hamilcar for having touched the mantle of Tanit is clearly inadequate as a summing up of the events of the novel, just as the explanations throughout the work have repeatedly proved to be inconsistent and unreliable. She talks a little bit about how, you can hear me turning the pages of her book here, uh, the book sort of frustrates interpretation. One might almost say frustrates meaning itself from time to time, but she talks about how it doesn't really fit into a genre. We kind of expect it to zig and it zags. One of the ways in which Flaubert seems to invite us to interpret the novel is as an epic, she writes. Certainly, as we begin to read, we come across many encouraging signs. The opening sentences explain the situation baldly and without emotion. The subject to be treated is an important one. 
the fate of a nation hangs in the balance, and gods intervene in the struggles of man. Vast panoramic views of crowd and battle scenes give way to minute close-ups. Passages of extravagant description and highly colored imagery interrupt the simple narrative. Long lists of nationalities follow, etc., etc. All this seems to suggest that Flaubert is narrating events, Anne Green writes, according to the conventions of the epic and that we should read the novel accordingly. But if we try to do so, we fail, for there is no true hero, she says. No model of probity and sacrifice. No glorious resolution of the situation. Neither side can be said to have won. And when the novel ends, we are left with a sense of bleakness and futility. The expectations raised by the epic framework are not sustained. The same thing happens if we try to read the work as a romance, as the opening passages also invite us to do. All the basic elements are there. Indeed, a summary of the first part of the plot makes it sound like a paradigm of the genre, she says. A handsome warrior meets and falls in love with a beautiful, high-born maiden... A feud erupts and separates the two, and a jealous rival, favored by the girl's father, poses an additional threat to their future happiness. But, again, the expectations raised by a familiar pattern of events are undermined. The lovers come together only once after their initial meeting. Salambo raises a dagger to stab the sleeping Matho, and the plot veers away from the love story to follow the course of the war and the struggles of the gods. And when the end comes, we have to see it as a parody of the conventional romantic ending, when hero and heroine are finally united in death. The intervening episodes and the physical horror of the final scene have removed any vestiges of romance. And then she says, the strongest temptation is to read the work as a conventional historical novel, uh, showing cause and effect, how certain things might have turned out differently, But she says, if we come to Salambo with expectations generated by such conventions, we are bound to be disconcerted, for it is this refusal to perpetuate the traditional historical novel's simplistic view of the past as knowable in some absolute sense that is one of Salambo's main achievements, she says. Flaubert openly admitted that what might appear to be a meticulous Carthaginian reconstruction in fact contains details borrowed from other ancient civilizations and from other periods. More important, he undermines our expectation of a narrative which is firmly rooted in fact and which will fill the gaps in the historical account with invention that seems both rational and probable. Instead, he weaves his fictional strands round the factual framework in such a way that the expected solidity of historical truth fades away into superstition, hallucination, myth. Myth frees the narrative from its Carthaginian context and illuminates the universal, says Anne Green, unchanging nature of the fundamental human traits of love, hate, cruelty, greed, jealousy, and fear. It shows us She says that the events which took place in Carthage were not an isolated phenomenon in a safely distant past, but must have their counterparts in any society, at any time. History, he seems to be saying, is not fixed and finished. It is akin to myth, and that both are attempts to find a conceptual system into which to fit a confusion of facts. But why am I just reading from Anne Green's book? Why don't we go talk to her? Let's go chat with Anne Green. I'm dying to ask her some questions. Come on. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, and hi. What other sorts of historical fiction were there in France that the reading public would sort of have been familiar with and might have expected this book to kind of slot into? Um, well, Walter Scott was extremely popular. So um, his novels sold in huge numbers in France. And what sorts of, were they books like Salambo? What, what, what sort of books were they? No, I think... I think they were, you know, they were exciting and they were, they focused on the picturesque and often, often they were rather didactic. Uh, and this is something that Flaubert was very scathing about, the idea that, you know, you should read a historical novel in order to learn about history. Um, this is one of the received ideas that he put into his dictionary of received ideas. And he thought it was nonsense. So, um Right. It's not trying to teach us about what happened in Carthage. I think often we hear that in with Madame Bovary, his first sort of massively successful and scandalous kind of novel, that Flaubert kind of reinvented novel writing. He had this new realistic style of writing which blew everybody away and which changed fiction. Um, can you just explain a little bit of what that means? So what... What did that consist of, this new realistic style? What, what do people mean when they say that? First of all, I think it's important to remember that Flaubert did not like being called a realist. He, oh, right. he, did, he didn't like labels. But I think what people saw in him, first of all, was the fact that Madame Bovary was dealing with ordinary people doing ordinary things. One of the things that some critics really objected to and were quite shocked by was a description when Charles first goes to Emma's father's farm and Flaubert describes you know, hens pecking on the midden and you know, dust on the harnesses hanging up in the barn. And they thought this was just 
outrageous that he should just have gone straight to the the point. And what is outrageous about describing the dust on a harness on the back? That doesn't sound outrageous at all. Why would that get such a reaction from people? I think because it it seemed unnecessary and it it it, it wasn't part of the story exactly. I think it 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 just wasn't what they had been used to. Mm-hmm. That kind of inconsequential detail, which Flaubert was very um, observant of, and um, his details don't always have a very heavy freight of symbolism hanging from them. This book comes in for some, if not maybe not criticism, but people talk about it as a as a as an escape from the present, as a flight into the past. And as I understand the kind of central thesis of the book that you wrote about this book is that that's not really the whole story, that Flaubert is actually weaving a lot of concerns about his the, the French society of his time into this book. He's working out some of those, some of the feelings that he has about what's going on around him. Is that, is that a fair? Yes, I, th- I think I think that's right. Um, I think he's you know he's very selective in the details that he includes from his researches, and um, those details tend to be slewed towards contemporary preoccupations. And the whole idea of you know barbarians and invasions and so on was. It, you know, it was almost a commonplace at this point to make comparisons between what was happening in France and um, the great cities of antiquity at the moment of their decline. Really? Like, the, because there, there, there was a feeling that France was in decline as those older civilizations had been? Yes, that, that you know, this was, France was entering a period of decadence and, you know, it was going eventually to banish like Babylon and Carthage. And so Carthage was really mentioned quite a lot during the period. So there were also a sense of um, a lot of contemporaries talk about the corruption of the period and the Philistinism. And this was something that particularly preoccupied Flaubert, the idea that this is a, a Philistine period where art and civilization really was uh, were threatened so the the, the 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 conditions just weren't there for great art for some reason in this society that was very much his his feeling yes um although in fact a lot of we now consider some of the 19th century you know the best writers of the 19th century france yeah. to have been writing then maybe it just shows how far we've fallen <laughs> <laughs> um, but is there? A, it seems like there's a funny uh, there's a funny linking of national decline with on the one hand with civilization on the other hand. Carthage has is this massively advanced civilization, mm. yet it is in decline. And France, Paris, similarly had reached this kind of zenith of uh, of civilization. Yet culturally, somehow it was into. That seems like a paradox to me. No, I think it was. I, I think what comes across in a lot of you know, newspaper articles and things at the time is the idea that France had been this great nation, but it was now really on the rocks. It was. It it, it was reaching 
the end. It was commercial and corrupt. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting, in his notes for sentimental education, which is about the revolves around the revolution of 1848, Flaubert says that... It's it's a period when there's an invasion of barbarians, and he says that every period needs perhaps needs a um, a blood transfusion. You know, perhaps this is a good thing that you know, shake everything up. Who were the barbarians that were invading in 1848? Well, I think just just the you know the the, the whole sense of dis- disruption, revolution. It might be helpful for some of our listeners who don't know what happened in 1848 to... Now, I realize we don't have an entire semester to deal with this. Um, but if we, if you could briefly, very briefly, just sketch out what happened in 1848. Okay, well, in 1848, there was a lot of unrest and eventually a revolution in which the, the king, Louis-Philippe, abdicated. So there was a provisional government... Louis Napoleon, who was the nephew of Napoleon I, was um, appointed president. And then in 1851, he staged a, a coup d'état. Um, and a year later, there was a plebiscite which um, approved him as emperor. So we move from a period, you know, a republican period where there were great hopes of change. Which to- lasted three years right yes to um the new second empire right it was a a real watershed and um i think a lot of the elements of 1848 are echoed in salambo you call it um a novel of questions you say it doesn't really answer a lot of things it more sort of calls up a bunch of questions and it's very open-ended you say it's there's um a, a lot of genres that it sort of invites uh, you to read it as, and then it slightly frustrates your attempts to read it as those things. And you mention it invites you to read it as an epic, and then it doesn't quite work, work as an epic. It invites you to read it as a romance, doesn't quite work as a romance in the end. It invites you to read it as a historical novel, but the things that you might be expected to, to get from a historical novel, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't quite give you either. It doesn't do the didactic thing that um, that these... Is that, a, is that a fair description? Yeah, I think so. And I think Flaubert was very keen to... I mean, he hated the idea of being dogmatic. He, you know, he was so aware of nuances and multiple possibilities. Um, so I think all the way through, we, you know, the reader's never really quite sure what's happening. The characters don't really know what is happening. And um, I think one of the things he's trying to do is to show how we try to make sense of the past. He's saying something about the whole process of history and how we try to fit events into some kind of shape, events that that at the time were just complete um, chaos, drifting past. Um, it's very much what he does in sentimental education too. But uh, yeah, so the final sentence of Salambo, and I don't want to spoil the ending for you. Go ahead, the book's been out for a while. <laughs> no, I mean, basically he says, you know, X happened, 
because of why. Yeah. You know, just this very uh, blunt explanation, which is you know, so obviously unsatisfactory. So obviously not true. I had yes. I had the exact same I had the exact same reaction to it um, when I read it's it's a it's a a real stonking last sentence and it it falls with the finality of a hammer. Mm. It's a short sentence. Mm. And I read it to myself thinking, well, that's not the whole story. <laughs> no, absolutely. So it really does send you right back to the beginning and make you wonder what is going on. And even the, the Carthaginians themselves at, at the end, in, in the, the final chapter, um, there's a, a sentence about them celebrating uh, because finally order has been re-established so that kind of finality but you know any reader knows that Carthage is on the verge of losing the Punic Wars to Rome and about to be wiped off the face of the earth completely just just destroyed utterly so yes there are, there are all sorts of multiple yeah. readings and um, even the you know, even the, the priest, Chabarim, who seems at the beginning to be so sure of his religion and his belief and so on, even by, by the end, he doesn't really know what he believes or what he thinks. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about was the, the romance uh, in this. To my 21st century eyes, Matho's, or Mato, perhaps I should say, his um, hysterics over Salambo. Even in the midst of, you know, carrying out a massive military campaign, he is beside himself uh, thinking about Salambo, wanting to possess her, not being able to possess her, being torn between loving and hating her, hating her because he can't possess her. Loving, it, it, to me, it feels a little bit anachronistic. Like, it feels like Flaubert's just sort of imported this a slightly cliched, uh, maybe 18th century romantic view of love into ancient Carthage. Is that uncharitable? Well, I'm not sure that I would see it as 18th century, but it, I think what... I guess I'm I, just thinking of like Byron and people like that. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that Flaubert felt was that his contemporaries were really sort of very, um, you know, the passion basically was lacking, that, that his contemporaries were all mediocre and bland and, you know... The, his, the, his writing, his contem- his the other people writing novels at, at the time he was, when you say his contemporaries? No, I'm, I, I just mean the modern Frenchman. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this a character like... Frédéric in Sentimental Education, for example, um, who drifts around and doesn't have, you know, passionate emotions. So I, th- I think in Matou, he's trying to show somebody who has extreme feelings such as no longer existed in in France. Ah, um, oh, I see. So I think, I think that's part of it. it there's also the sense, because Matou... Salambu represents Carthage. I mean, she kind of embodies Carthage. So 
his desire for her is also his desire to conquer Carthage. Oh, so there's, God, there's of course. that element as well. Now that makes sense that he would link those two things together. Yes, and she, you know, the, the, the whole idea of the sea and, and, and also there's the religious element coming in too, the mystical um, you know, sun, moon. Matu is the sun. Salimbu is the moon. Moloch and Tanit. And finally, can you just tell us a little bit about the way that he prepared this book compared with how he prepared uh, Madame Bovary? Would he? You've been through some of his actual notes, right, that he made to himself. Would he have sketched this out the same way that he sketched out something like Madame Bovary? No, his research was obviously very different because Madame Bovary was set in Normandy, where Flaubert lived, and um, it's set more or less in the, the present and, uh, you know, he used his own observation, whereas Salambo is much more dependent on his his readings. But he did start writing Salambo and wrote a, a first draft of a, a first chapter, and then decided he just couldn't go on with it. He couldn't, you know, he needed more information, and so he set off to visit the. Um, the, the the site of the novel to to go back to Tunisia and took lots of notes on the landscape and the the light on the mountains and the ruins that he saw. So it's when we read his descriptions of the way that the light hits the city, and the, that would have really just been that would have been taken from his own observations. Yes, I think so. I mean, not not necessarily all of it, but mm-hmm. he he felt that having been there and seen the people who lived there, even if it's hundreds and you know, thousands of years later, um, he, he was still getting something that would enable him to write more convincingly about uh, the mm-hmm. period. I think one of the things that's really interesting, if you look at the the manuscripts of Salambou and also of Madame Bouvary, is the amount of uh, rather gory, gruesome descriptions that have been erased from Madame Bovary. So you're talking about descriptions that he had written, things that he'd, and then decided not to include in the book. Yes, yes. Really sort of, you know, descriptions of decapitations and blood and gore and so on, which then get removed from Madame Bovary. But then come out in <laughs> extreme measure in in Salambu. Um and I think this is this is a tendency throughout his his writing that you know, there are these horrible things within him self which I think possibly stem from traumatic experiences in his youth his childhood mm-hmm. um, these images that keep bubbling up to the surface that he tries to suppress but then in, in Salambo they can all burst out you know, he has descriptions of eviscerations and beheadings and all kinds of horrible things yeah and on that note <laughs> um, thank you very much Anne for, uh, for talking with us a pleasure thank you and I hope you're going to erase most of it <laughs> So that was Anne Green uh, talking to me about Salambo, which she wrote about a good number of years ago now, uh, but which still clearly 
has a pretty special place in her heart. Thank you so much uh, for listening with me, reading with me uh, this book. Uh, as you can tell, it's got a special place in my heart, too. And maybe it does for you now, too. Please come back and find out what I do in the next installment of Eli Reads. I don't know myself. I've got a few ideas, though. I'll see you then. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.